Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. We are going to dig into the Old Testament for this conversation. In particular, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and its relationship to science. How old is the earth? Um, how does evolution fit into the creation account? Um, are the days of Genesis 1 literal? And on and on it goes. Tremper Longman, Tremp, Dr. Tremper Longman Third, is one of the top evangelical scholars in the country today. He used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary and also Westmont College in California. And is just absolutely brilliant. The dude has written more books than I've read. And I'm talking about like high powered, academic, engaging, thorough, thoughtful books. Uh, his specialty, which we don't get into, is on love poetry in the ancient Near East. He has written the definitive, I think, the definitive commentary on the Song of Songs. But we don't get into any of that. We just talk about Genesis 1, science and creation. Tremper is my go-to guy because he is thoroughly committed to the authority of Scripture. And yet he is also thoroughly um, aware of outside um, things like science and how we should pay attention to both special revelation and general revelation. Um, and then we're going to do another podcast where we discuss specifically the historicity of Adam. Okay. So for this episode, we're talking about creation and the age of the earth for the next episode with Tremper. We're going to talk about the historicity of Adam is Adam an actual historical figure that every single human being come from Adam. Um, how does that square with the human genome project led by Francis Collins and other scientific issues that seem to present some issues with the way Genesis one to three presents human origins. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the raw Support the show for as little as two, no, not two, five bucks a month. And you can give two bucks a month. You're just not going to get anything for it. Um, but if you give five bucks a month, you can get once a month podcasts. Uh, Ten bucks a month gives you a podcast and a blog a month. Uh, $25 a month gives you two podcasts and a blog a month. That's all behind a paywall. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. If you would like to check out this conversation on YouTube, you can go to my YouTube channel, press and sprinkle, um, and subscribe to the channel. And a lot of these podcasts, the last several podcasts that I've been releasing, uh, were previously released on my YouTube channel because a lot of people like YouTube and they don't watch, listen to podcasts. A lot of people listen to podcasts. They don't watch YouTube. So I am trying to produce this material on both platforms. So if you hear us reference YouTube, you hear us reference a visual. Um, I think Tremper did hold up one of his books uh, during the filming. So you can go to my YouTube channel and check out what book that was. Okay. Without further ado, please welcome to the show for the first time, my friend and mentor from a distance, the one and only Dr. Tremper Longman III. friends i'm here with my friend uh tremper longman um me and tremper go back several years I'll, I'll never forget having you come out to eternity bible college you drove down from santa barbara and taught a class on the song of songs which was interesting <laughs> you don't you didn't hold back anything man and, and our students really appreciated it um so yeah if you guys don't know who tremper is i mean i would consider uh tremper i mean i i don't know if i've ever told you this but i mean at least one of the top 
evangelical Old Testament scholars of our of our day. You, you might you're you're humble and you'll you'll probably resist that. But I, I mean, yeah, Tremper's written just dozens of books, like high quality books. And wh- whenever I have question hard questions about the Old Testament, I I mean, you're kind of my go to because you have a very high view of Scripture. And yet you don't have an overly like literal, literal, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'll say an overly like fundamentalist approach to scripture while maintaining um, a very high view of scripture knowledge. Of, you have a vast knowledge of science in the Bible and how that intersects. So let's start there. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having, thanks for coming on my show, Tripper. <laughs> hey, Preston, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you again. <laughs> it's been a while. So I, both- yeah. I uh, know it has yeah. been a while. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I just been wrestling with several uh, things related to the Bible and science. I am not knowledgeable in this area. I mean, I've read a couple things here and there, but I just need help navigating this whole, uh, old earth, young earth debate. So why don't we start? Wh- where do you come out? Uh, how would you describe your view of science and creation? And then we'll just start going through kind of the top questions that often come up. Sure. Yeah. So um, first of all, like you, I have a caveat, which is I'm not a scientist. You know, I'm, yeah. I am a biblical scholar who has worked in this area and thought about these issues and have been in conversation with really some of the leading Christian scientists Mm -hmm. in the world and uh, through interaction at the BioLogos Foundation and and the AAAS uh, Science for Seminaries program and other ways. It's been a great uh, opportunity to interact with world-class scientists. Uh, So, um, but where I come down, maybe I'll just say where I come down on the old earth, young earth, and then we could go from there as to why, but I'm very solidly in the old earth that the, that the universe is what, what, something like 14.2 billion years old and the earth is 4.2 billion years old. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, and, and I don't see any conflict between the Bible and science on this matter. Okay. Okay, well, uh, so let's just, why don't we start with um, science or Bible? Let's start with the science. Um, okay. Would you say that, that the, the age of the earth, age of the universe, the stats you gave, is that, would you consider that a more or less consensus? I mean, um, you know, we could, I almost use the analogy of like, you know, that the earth is round, you know, but yeah, right. we also have a flat earth society or, you know, <laughs> so there's always, obviously there's always gonna be exceptions, but is the age of the earth much of a debate among scientists these days? I mean, um, no, it's, it's not a debate at all. Okay. I mean, uh, don't ask me to name them all. Right. Uh, there are, uh, something like 12, 13, 14 different lines of evidence, scientific evidence that support the, these views, things like various types of radiometric dating, um, you know, uh, as well as, you know, uh, measuring the distance where we get, I think, the 14.2, I may be off on that yeah. by a few hundred million. <laughs> but <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, um, you know, in terms of how f- the furthest celestial 
light that is hitting the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're able to measure that. And unless you take the view that God created the earth to look old, and there are those who do that, or that God created the stars with the light yeah. touching, uh, which I think is both unnecessary and, uh, and, and kind of imputes to God the idea that he's going to give us a false impression of reality. Huh. Okay. And, and, I, and I think that's something important to uh, highlight here. Uh, the Bible is God's most clear and specific self-disclosure to us, revelation, to be sure. But he also reveals, to, uh, reveals himself to us through nature, right? So uh, Psalm 8, Romans 1, 20, I think it is. And the Belgic Confession talks about, you know, what commonly is called a two-book theology. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think what that means is when we look at nature, we can find out true things about God and about creation itself, and that God is not going to mislead us in nature any more than he's going to mislead us in scripture. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, I, I, I will often, uh, Pope John Paul II has a great quote, um, which is, uh, that science can refine religion while religion keeps science from idolatry and false absolutes. Hmm. You know, so, so to me, what he's saying is sometimes science can help us read the Bible better. <laughs> right. Yeah. With the Galileo moment, you know, um, which is more complicated than the church versus secular science, but still, uh, there were some theologians who felt that the Bible taught that the world was the center of the cosmos and resisted the science. And the science at the time of Galileo about that was less confident than the science about either the age of the earth or, as we'll talk about maybe another time, uh, evolution. There's a lot more evidence in favor of the age of the earth and evolution than there was at the time of Galileo for um, the fact that the earth isn't the center, the unmover center of the cosmos. Well, let's, you just mentioned evolution and the phrase, if I can remember it right, that you prefer is you're an evolutionary creationist. Correct. Yeah. Can you unpack, uh, yeah, uh, unpack that for us and uh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, it used to be referred to more often as theistic evolution. But the reason why many of us prefer evolutionary creationism is because we want to emphasize the fact that we're creationists. Okay. We believe God created everything, including human beings. Um, we, we just don't think that while the Bible does tell us that God created everything, and got, including human beings, uh, it's not telling us how he did it. Okay. Uh, and I could get into why I think that's the obvious and right conclusion. But for that reason, we can, you know, look at science and, uh, and it's particularly, uh, you know, I'm not saying that whenever some scientific theory arises that it's absolutely right mm-hmm. and, uh, but what I am saying is when there is a 
incredible consensus of scientific thinking uh, over a long period of time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the church ought to be attentive to it and and uh, and not immediately in a kind of knee-jerk reaction say that can't be right because the Bible teaches otherwise. So what would and, be... And, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, what are, what are some, if you can get inside inside of the person who would hear so far everything you're saying is have major like problems with that, biblically speaking, what are some of the main pushbacks biblically to uh, your view about the age of the earth and, um, and just the, even the idea that evolution is part of the means by which right. God is used to create the world and, and humanity? Sure. Um, I'll be prejudicial when I respond to this. Uh, the main pushback arises out of a faulty reading of Scripture. Okay. A, a, a lack of recognition of what Genesis 1 through 3, and perhaps also the genealogies when it comes to the age of the earth issue, uh, what they're trying to teach us. Um, and reads it and and tends to read these texts as if they were written in the 21st century, A, Mm -hmm. and B, very woodenly, without any kind of appropriate literary or historical sensitivity. Um, So, so as you know, I'm talking about issues of genre, recognizing Mm -hmm. that the Bible... uh, was written to an ancient audience in a language Hebrew and with um, styles and means of communication that were familiar to them. Um, so, so uh, to understand, and, and maybe it's just one example. Um, you know, the fact that as you read Genesis one and two. Uh, you you should be struck by the highly figurative nature of the description of the creation of the cosmos and human beings. Let me give you two examples. The first one is the fact that you have days in Genesis 1, uh, but the sun, moon, and stars aren't created till day 4, which then should, in a sensitive reader... uh, signal to you that we're not talking about 24-hour days because you need a sun, moon, and stars to have the 24-hour day. Uh, And I'm aware of some of the, and I think they're very desperate attempts to say things like, well, it's really talking, the sun, moon, and stars were created on day one, light and darkness. Uh, But on day four, the clouds disappeared. You could see the sun, moon, and stars from the earth and you kind of go who's on the earth at this time that that would have that perspective or the other one is you know there's some other form of light that god kind of switches on and off in a 24-hour period um so um so i i think and then of course there's also a lack of sensitivity to the kind of parallelism between the first three days which talk about the creation of realms that are filled by the inhabitants of those realms in days uh, 
you know, four through six. So the sun, moon, and stars fills the realm of light and darkness. The fish and birds fill the realm of mm. the sky and the waters. The land animals and the uh, human beings fill the fill uh, the realm described on day three, which is land. Um, and then, you know, combine that with the fact that there's a lack of what I call sequence concord between Genesis one and Genesis two, that has often been, that has been observed widely, um, where you have, for instance, the creation of vegetation after the creation of the first human being. There's some interesting, you know, all translations are interpretive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not being critical of the principle here, but I find that versions like the ESV and the NIV and even the NLT, which I was most closely involved with, yeah. tends to do a little bit of harmonization in, by use of verbal tense uh, there. That isn't the most natural reading of the Hebrew. Okay. Most people, so so it's it's an intentional kind of harmonization to try to gain more sequence concord than I think and most scholars think is really there. Okay. But then the okay. second example, oh, and by the way, while I'm on the days, <laughs> let me let me quickly point out that this is an ancient view. You know, it's not like people have noticed this for the first time because people are talking about the age of the earth. I mean, scholars like Augustine and Origen uh, also recognize that the days were not literal 24-hour days. Um, Augustine says, of course, these aren't solar days. And Origen said, who would be so foolish as to think that these days are 24-hour days uh, when you don't even have a sun, moon, and stars until... So I'm just really? making... The, yeah. I'm just making... I'm, I'm making the case that has been made since the early church about this. Yeah. And um, Yeah, so... And then the other... Another example of what I think is an obvious figurative depiction of an actual event. Again, the actual event is God created human beings, but it's depicted in Genesis 2-7 uh, by describing him taking some of the dust of the ground and breathing on it. Mm -hmm. and, and of course we know, you know, God doesn't have lungs. Uh, so you have to, you know, but then there are other people who say, well, you know, this is Jesus. And I'm going, wait a minute. Jesus became flesh at the time of the incarnation. A, And secondly, no Old Testament reader would have ever understood that way. So, um, so, um, and when it comes to genealogies, you know, and that's how the young earth is often constructed by adding up Genesis five, no. Uh, first of all, people mistakenly read the um, ancient genealogies as if they are modern genealogies. You don't skip generations. You know, my my uh, my wife's stepfather insisted that I become a member of various organizations like the Sons of the American Revolution. So he had to provide a genealogy for me. He also made me a life member because he knew I'd never pay for it. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
but you know you can't skip a generation, et cetera, et cetera. But if you study ancient genealogies, and we have some from Babylon, et cetera, they're they're much more flexible in many different ways than modern genealogies, including skipping generations and and uh, uh, genealogies serve different functions in the ancient world than it did in the modern world, and so. Uh, you know, B.B. Warfield and Timothy Green, his associate at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary in the 19th century, particularly Timothy Green, has a really good, and I mention that because they're kind of, you know, Warfield's considered the architect of the modern doctrine of inerrancy, mm-hmm. and uh, Green agrees with that view. But Green points out as he compares different genealogies like genealogies in Genesis with uh, comparable genealogy in Ezra, mm-hmm. that that generations can be skipped. So, mm-hmm. so all those things lead me to say the Bible's really not interested in telling us when everything began. Yeah. And yeah. so because of that, we can say, well, what is as we look and study nature? What does that tell us? What What about the phrase that the the repetition of evening and morning? Like I've heard people say, and and honestly, I it sounds like a good argument, even if everything you said is is correct. That <laughs> emphasis on evening and morning seems to really drive home this idea of we're talking about a literal oh, day here. Oh yeah. Well, I. Let me. It's a little, in my opinion, a little bit more complicated. A little bit more complicated than that. Uh, again, there's no question, but uh, 24-hour days are being described there, uh, evenings and mornings. But because of the fact you don't have sun, moon, and stars, you can't have an actual historical evening and morning for the first three days. So what's going on is. I believe, and so did Herman Bobbing, by the way. I like to cite these old... Uh, <laughs> these old reform guys. <laughs> old reform guys. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's taking a literal week in order to describe the creation, and, um, but it's using a literal week in a metaphorical way. <laughs> okay. It's not saying God did it in six days and rest on the seventh is saying, let's take a work week and let's use that as a figure of speech to communicate the fact that God created everything uh-huh. and then rest. So, um, so, um, John Collins, I don't know whether you know yeah. him, uh, Jack, John, uh, the one that teaches at covenant seminary has, a uh, a really good presentation of, uh, I think it's called the analogical days view, which he accepts. Um, and he's the one who cites Bobbing. That's how I know Bobbing killed it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, okay, I guess this, you might've already answered it, but the, the other thing I often hear is that, you know, the Sabbath command, which is uh-huh. a literal day in Deuteronomy, Exodus is built on, the creation account, right? So, um, since, since the author of those laws are talking about a literal Sabbath and a literal work week, therefore, um, we can assume he's drawing on a literal week of creation. How would you 
respond to that? Is that another big argument you often hear in favor of a yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah, that is a, a, an argument, and and you know these arguments have some punch to them, to be sure. Um, and uh, but I because of course um, I always forget whether it's Exodus or Deuteronomy in the Ten Commandments that appeals back to the creation as a mandate. I think often though these appeals back are not. Are, are appealing back to the story in order to communicate a theological truth. Again, there's history in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, I call it theological history, um, where it talks about historical events using figurative language, okay? So, but there's real history behind it, like God created the cosmos, like, uh, like um, when human beings were first created, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, perhaps uh, they were morally innocent. Like there was also uh, what I would call a historical fall, you know, that human beings uh, rebelled against God, and that's what introduced sin and death into the world. God didn't make us, and we only learned this, by the way, that, that's where the other half of um, Pope John Paul's comment comes in about how the Bible keeps us from idolatry and false absolutes. Mm -hmm. We learn important things that we can't learn from science from the Bible, things like we could never learn from science, from observation or experience, that there was a time when human beings created in the image of God were morally innocent. Okay. Uh, or that there was a historical fall. And I mention that because um, a friend, a, a very, very close friend of mine, former student, colleague, uh, drinking buddy, <laughs> uh, Peter Enns, um, you know, wrote a book called The Evolution of Adam, where he says, essentially, uh, science precludes the idea of original moral innocence or historical fall. And I say, no, that's uh, that's an incorrect capitulation. It's not a capitulation to science. It's a misuse mm. of science, I think. And, and by the way, I'll have to promote it in this book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, okay. Pressing Questions About Evolution, Sexuality, History, and Violence, oh, wow. which, by the way, Nice. You haven't seen yeah. this yet? I haven't seen that. I need to get a copy of that. I didn't hear yeah. Preston, the <laughs> violence section. <laughs> we appeal to your vanity to finally get it. <laughs> but, but, but the book is largely a loving pushback toward some uh, prim primarily, uh, you know, of, of Pete's ideas on evolution, but also uh, loving pushback against young earth creationism and the evolution part. Okay. And, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so that's, um, I forgot how we got yeah. there. I've lost. No, no, it's fine. I, yeah. So, um, in, 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 uh, promoting my book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, here's a, I, I have a question that I, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to word this. Um, Let's let's flip it around. Well, it's kind of a twofold question. Number one, do you think the author of 
uh, Genesis one and two um, was trying to get at a literal, like, do you think he believed it was literal? Or do you think, or do you think he or she um, just wasn't even, didn't even have that question in mind would be another. And and, and, let's just start there. And then I've got another kind of related question. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, let me, let me answer that at least to start by saying when I make a claim about what a text means, yeah, I'm I'm making a I'm making a claim about what the author intended. Right. Okay. Yeah. So so yeah. So when I say the I I, I would put it more bluntly than by saying the author does not want us to read Genesis okay. one to two to try to discover how God created creation. Mm-hmm. And how do we, we how do we know that? We can't get into the author's right. mind, of course. Uh, but Kevin Van Hooser, also a former student, by the way, back at Westminster Days, Pete and Kevin. Um, <laughs> Kevin Van Hooser has this great book, uh, Is There a Meaning in This Text? And right. and he talks about authorial intention, uh, not as it's often conceived as trying to get into the mind of the author, because we have no independent access to the author's intention except through the text. So we're analyzing uh, the author's, uh, you know, writing in order to make hypotheses about what the author intended his readers to understand. So, yeah. So I guess basically to answer your question, uh, my, claim is that um, that uh, the author of Genesis uh, is really intent on praising God for creating everything, for creating human beings, um, and my, many other things, also telling us very important things about our, crea- our relationship to creation, our relationship to each other. Um, but what it's not interested in, and and you know, I think it's a fair point to say that the author wasn't interested in this topic is how is how yeah yeah, um, yeah. and so um, so yeah yeah that's <laughs> so the, so the follow up question is let's let's flip it around and and say that the overwhelming scientific evidence was for a young earth. Let's just, let's just let's yeah. picture that world for a second that almost sure. every scientist on earth said, man, this world was created six to 10,000 years ago. The science is overwhelming. Do you think that would change the way you read Genesis or, <laughs> or would you say yeah. like, well, yeah, obviously the Bible agrees with that. Or would you say, man, now we have a, a conflict in the other direction. Cause the Bible clearly is not yeah. talking about a young earth or do you, or, or well, yeah, I'll let you finish. Well, I think I know what you're going to say. Really good. I got. I, I. I really like that question. I think that's right because, uh, or even let's talk about what if evolution turns out to be a false hypothesis. Right. Uh, so would uh, scientists affirming um, a uh, a young Earth would scientists saying no? Uh, evolution's a false hypothesis. Would that change my view of yeah. Genesis? And the answer is clearly, absolutely not. Okay. See that. <laughs> my point is that the Bible's not interested okay. in talking about these issues. So, 
In other words, I'm not what is commonly called a concordist. A concordist is somebody who thinks that you can actually uh, discern modern scientific ideas right. in the Bible. Uh, like you, uh, Ross, of uh, Reasons to Believe is probably the most well-known concordist today. Mm -hmm. uh, he'll talk about Psalm 104, where it says, God stretches out the heavens, and he goes, see, it teaches the Big Bang Theory. Mm. You know, and I, it, it, to me, no. That's yeah, a that sounds tent, fishy. <laughs> that's a tent metaphor. So don't look in, Look at the Bible to, um, you know, you know, and, and, and it's tempting because you want to say, hey, look, uh, the Bible was written thousands, hundreds, thousands of years ago. And we just discovered this uh, 75 years ago, the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, that must yeah. be. Therefore, the Bible must be of divine origin, you know, because yeah. only God could have had that perspective. Or, um, yeah, so, but, but those are, in my opinion, uh, mistaken apologetic uses of the Bible. Uh, just like that, that's also a problem I have with the intelligent design uh, movement, which is they sort of trade on gaps in our scientific knowledge mm -hmm. and say, science will never explain this. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that's the finger of God. Mm -hmm. The problem with those types of uh, apologetic arguments is all too often down the road, uh, science does discover, <laughs> yeah. you know, an explanation for it. Um, and famously, William Pat Paley at the end of the 18th century said, look at the rainbow. Look at the rainbow. No one can scientifically describe how the rainbow appears. And notice in Genesis 9, God puts the rainbow in the sky. Yeah. This is, and of course, you know, we can sort of explain the rainbow. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for you, the, it's not, you wouldn't say that the, the Bible argues for or even um, right. is trying to say the earth is old or yeah, it's like it just doesn't, it's just not interested in that. So yeah, so the science, it really depends on this because the overwhelming evidence of the science says it's this age. The Bible allows for both. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're compatible. Yeah, that, that's what I mean by they're compatible. Okay. Yeah. Um, and by the way, on on this matter, uh, let me see. I I quote Calvin in here. Really, I think. Uh, uh, in, uh, something that I think modern Christians um, should heed. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, it's gonna... You getting all your, all your reformed... Uh... <laughs> all my reformed guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so between you and me, I consider myself very soft reformed these days. <laughs> yeah, that's about uh, where I'm at. That's about where I'm yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah, I just I haven't been interested in some of the classic questions in traditional like reform traditional I would say, you know, 20th late 20th century reform debates and stuff. I just and, and not and not that there's not valid issues they're wrestling with. I just personally haven't been that interested in those, but no, um I agree. Yeah. I agree. I'm having well, trouble coming up with this quote, but basically what he said, well, 
Let me let me try it. Well, ask me another question. I'll find it. Come back to it. <laughs> okay. 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 Um. So, what do you think is? Well, I mean, and we might have already covered it. What do you think is the strongest argument in favor of the young Earth? Um. You know, is it? Do you see the evening and morning repetition? Like, if you were gonna, if yeah, <laughs> if you're on uh, stage in a debate or something, what is what's that one main main argument where it's like I, I'm gonna have a, a little tougher time, kind of refuting this one in a convincing manner or is there one? Oh, no well i yeah i to be honest i don't think there is a real strong argument to be made in favor of young earth creationism um but the question you asked about the sabbath would probably is okay. probably the most difficult one well, um actually let me so can, can we make a distinction between the literal day question versus the age of the earth. I, I think I read, um, is it John? I think John Lennox in his little book oh, yeah, right. says these are often conflated together, but they're kind of two different questions. And it might come down to the relationship between Genesis, what one, one and one, two and following. I forget yeah. the precise nature of it, but he said, we can't just eat, you know, we can't just lump them all together. Would you, would you agree with that? That, I mean, you could, in theory could have a literal, well, maybe it's the, maybe it's the age of the universe. You could have the age of the universe really old, but if you believe in a literal 24 hour day, you kind of have to have a little, a young earth or how do you see the relationship? Well, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it, but when you mention it, I think you can probably divide those questions. Um, into two different questions. I mean, I can imagine an old Earth, and of course, there's there's so many different permutations of various viewpoints. But I think one of them is uh, that there are periods of time between the days. Even uh, I forget the technical term. Of okay. That. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well, we have to. Um, I'm, we're going to close this one out, but we. I want to come back and talk to you uh, in another video about uh, the historicity of Adam because we haven't even really. We're just kind of lingering in Genesis one. So let's. Um, yeah, let's uh, save some energy. We'll talk about Adam maybe in a, a shorter video. This one went a, l a little longer than I intended. Um, so the the for my watch my viewers and listeners. So we're going to come back and talk about whether or not Adam is a historical figure. And also just the nature of the Garden of Eden and how much of this is myth, how much of it's history. Um, I know these are live questions. So thanks so much yeah. for joining me on the show, Tremper. Thank you, Preston. I know some of you did not agree with Tremper's perspective, and that's okay. I hope that you still enjoyed hearing uh, the perspective of an evolutionary creationist. I like that he put the emphasis on creation, quite honestly. Um, I, st I still have questions about it. I have not engaged the scientific material. I will say, as I uh, said in this conversation, or maybe it's offline, I can't remember, that uh, most of the people that I respect that know um, the science of this whole conversation and also are clearly um, committed to the authority of Scripture, most people that I personally know and that I personally respect are young earth um, creationists along the lines of Tremper. They may not say everything exactly how Tremper said it, but they, they would line up in the same general camp. And so that would be my kind of default position. So I do, uh, I would line up with Tremper's position. I would hold that very lightly because I, I don't have not 
done a lot of study on it. That would just be, I guess, my default position. So whatever your position is, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, if anything, it forces us all forces us all to go back to scripture, go back to science, and think. What does the Bible actually say about these things? I hope you enjoyed this conversation and please do stay tuned for the next conversation with Tremper Long where we discuss the historicity of Adam and Eve.